Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. Hi, people. This is Gabe's Torres. This is the third episode of this season. I get to have a conversation with Chiyun Kim. Chiyun is a justice-oriented therapist of Korean ancestry located in what is colonially known as Vancouver, Canada. With collective liberation as her vision, she aims to disrupt oppressive practices of the mental health industry and its complicities and envision new ways of mental health care rooted in abolition and community. She also deeply believes in embodied joy, ease, and liberation while in the pursuit of collective liberation. In this conversation, we get to talk about abolition. And according to Critical Resistance, abolition or prison industrial complex abolition is a political vision with the goal of eliminating imprisonment, policing, and surveillance and creating lasting alternatives to punishment and imprisonment. So I just want to recognize here that we talk about abolition more specifically in the context of mental health industry. Throughout this episode, G and I talk a little bit about suicidality as well. So I just wanted to give you all some content warning on that. We don't get too specific about cases here. Um, instead, we just talk about how police are involved when it comes to mental health crises. And we talk about it with brevity. So just so you are informed, if it's helpful to have somebody listen with you or to not listen to it at all, then please prioritize your needs, prioritize your well-being. And in the spirit of abolition and also being mindful of everything that is happening right now on a global scale, I want to be able to say that abolition is also connected to defunding military and dismantling military, right? And with everything that is happening in the world that is related to the Israel apartheid that is funded by the U.S., among other countries all across the globe that have state-sanctioned violence, we ought to take a stand and stand in solidarity with the oppressed peoples of Palestine, of Myanmar, of Hawaii, of Colombia, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and all of the countries who are suffering from colonial regime an authoritarian regime that is U.S. funded. Our tax dollars are going to this war machine. And I also urge you that more than just being educated and being aware of all that is happening globally, to also take the practical steps in practicing your democracy and call your reps and legislators to organize together and demand the decreases and eventually the cutting of police and military budgets and then redirect that to social goods. Okay, I'm done with my intro. May you learn so much from this conversation and thank you. Thank you for choosing to listen. My intent in every podcast interview episode, whether that may be me interviewing or being interviewed, I dedicate our time together to um, an ancestor or so, a non-human 
friend, an animal, a pet, um, or even like a person of esteemed influence whom you haven't necessarily met yet as a way to kind of like locate ourselves collectively mm-hmm. and even like intergenerationally if we are to dedicate our time to an ancestor that we are um that we are a community and that we are who we are and we do the work that we do because of certain folks um, in our community who have accompanied us and taught us in many different ways um, to, you know, to do the work that we do right now and to be the person that we are right now. So I'm curious, G, who do you wish to dedicate our time together to? Mm-hmm. Honestly, the first thing that came up for me was like my younger self who went through a lot of violence in the mental health by the mental health industry right so I think that was like the number one um Mm -hmm. person of of my younger self who needed this right who needed this conversation um and then the second is uh just more general, but just like to the, all of the indigenous peoples on Turtle Island. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the land that we are on and the, and just creation and the stewards of this. And I've been envisioning a lot around, you know, what did this land look like before settlers? Mm -hmm. Um, And what, what would have, what would it have looked like if it wasn't for settlers, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, also to them, because mental health industry also commits a lot of violence um, to Indigenous peoples as well. Um, and then my dog, Belle, she has been bringing me the most joy <laughs> ever lately. And I think that's like really special considering, you know, or reduced sources of joy in the pandemic mm. as well so yeah, yeah. Mm. thank you honor to bell honor to the indigenous peoples of turtle island and honor to younger you yes whom you are caring for yes in real time she's still there mm-hmm. um i typically also dedicate um our time to somebody as well and thank you thank you for sharing that that's beautiful and powerful um, I dedicate our time together. I haven't really thought of this. Thank you, good things on the spot. Okay, so I want to dedicate. Oh, this actually feels well. So recently, I and you know this, like I've recently found my political home now. Mm-hmm. AKA, so I, if, for context for folks, like I have been jumping from one organization or one community of organizers to the next. Um, and then finally landed on my um, political home, found alignment and not just alignment with the vision, but also with the way that we organize together. Mm. Um, so I dedicate my time together to Malaya Movement, where um, in this movement of abolition, we seek to defund military aid in a global scale, specifically the aid that is given to Philippine military and police force in the colonized islands of the Philippines, especially mm-hmm. with the extrajudicial killings that are sanctioned or issued by the president, the dictator president himself. Yeah. So really grateful for these folks who are, we don't get paid for the work that we do. And that's like mm-hmm. what grassroots work is. And yet just the level of excellence and sharpness and 
even the joy in having to fight for our people yeah as folks who are not based in the philippines right now is just giving me so much energy and um hope mm, yes community for collective vision i know co-ls oh. co-ls <laughs> yes. oh, yeah i'm so happy for you in that thank you me too all right so before we keep talking about this thing called abolition mm-hmm. the abolition of <laughs> <laughs> i'm so excited Oh my gosh, y'all, like, just to give y'all some, this is going to be more like a conversation, um, just to give folks some, some intro, uh, intro notes, more of a conversation, um, also wanting to, the words that you used before G is like depositioning ourselves as experts, as we mm-hmm. are, um, we are deep in the study, and we're also pretty new to this study. These, the words and the ideas that we're also going to be sharing are not original to Mm -mm. us these are pioneered like by many black women femmes folks and that they are in the forefront of this work um which we will um like over time we will be addressing them and we'll also include them in the show notes Mm -hmm. for more resources but um okay so we want to get to know chi first would love to hear about your story and what is it that led you to doing the work that you do? More specifically, what has brought you or what has strengthened your inclination to abolition work in the context of mental health industry? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So to briefly introduce myself to the folks who don't know me, uh, my name is Chi Yun. That is my Korean name, which I am trying to reclaim um, more recently, thanks to Gabe's Heritage Workshop, PS, promo. Um, <laughs> uh, so my name is Jian, Kim Jian, and I am a justice-oriented therapist located out of uh, so-called Vancouver, what is coloni- colonially known as Vancouver, Canada, which is the stolen and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. And so most of British, so-called British Columbia, the province of Canada, is unceded and stolen. Like, no treaties, zero treaties. Um, and so that is where I am coming from. I am a immigrant, uh, like, my family came here to so-called Vancouver when I was five years old from Korea, which is where my ancestors are from. And yeah, like, so I grew up here on, on these uh, unceded territories for most of my life. And I think being of Asian diaspora, I like really struggled with this in-between space that I think a lot of folks of diaspora experience. Um, of like when I'm in white spaces I'm not I'm too Asian and when I'm in Asian spaces I'm too white right and so navigating that in between and just really experiencing a clash of cultures and expectations and values among my peer groups and within my immediate family and so all that plus many other factors led to um, me you know, experiencing pretty severe mental illness as a teenager. I also experienced a tremendous loss of the death of a friend by suicide in high school. And 
that kind of triggered a lot of mental health things, which, you know, initially it's grief, but it's grief plus add on all the other factors, including the resistance to it. (laughs) Right. Um, So, yeah, it led to quite a like a few waves or time periods of pretty severe mental health challenges uh, myself including like suicidality and I think what really drew me to this uh, so-called profession as a therapist (laughs) um oh I I really don't even like that word um this profession as a therapist I actually was really resistant towards it. It was like that one thing that my mom really didn't want me to do <laughs> because I'm so emotional. I was, I, I grew up being so emotionally invested into people's pains um, and the pains of the world. Uh, but as I was like really working through my own healing journey, it kind of just happened. And I was like, okay, I'm in like, I, I really enjoy this. I really enjoy, and it's important. Like it's so important to break these intergenerational cycles of trauma and abuse, and um, and like our and the policing of ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Especially as people of color. Mm-hmm. And so then I leaned into it, but then I learned through school and my training of how violent the industry can be. Um, I learned about that through my own experience is while I was mentally ill, but also as a student, as a therapy, therapy student, and just like the white supremacy of it, the coloniality yeah. of it, mm-hmm. um, like the police violence that is involved in the mental health industry, the ways that we as practitioners are complicit in that. Um, yeah, because I've had, you know, firsthand personal lived experience of police violence as well. When I learned about abolition, of I think as like a non-Black, non-Indigenous person of color, I was definitely hesitant for a moment. Um, but then I got into it and I was like, oh my goodness, this makes so much sense. And I always think about, okay, if these are systems, how is this applying to me and the work that I do? Okay. How is it seeping into everything? Mm-hmm. Um, and I and the, the ties to the mental health industry were so obvious to me when I actually looked at it and so yeah that's why I'm like intrigued by abolition Mm -hmm. and therapy like the mental health industry um as we talked about before Gabe's like I think I yeah I consider myself like a very very new to this um Mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot you know having a lot of conversations with you um yeah but I think it's a conversation that's so needed and is not present Mm -hmm. in this industry in particular Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah for sure thank you Mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that um it it makes me think so one of the things that I read today before we got together was how well one we don't the integration or just talking um, about mental health industry and abolition, um, it's not as talked about, and yet it's so entwined, like so, yes. so entwined. And one of the things that I had read today is that in the early 1800s, um, there has been an increase of mental asylums mm-hmm. or psychiatric hospitals. And because it's become overcrowded, it was. Um, 
kind of inevitable, inevitable because of the system that we do have right now to um, prioritize the con- confinement versus patient care. And mm-hmm. so when we talk about the connection between mental health industry and prisons it has to be named at the outset that they developed alongside one another ruth um, wilson gilmore talks about how the prison industrial complex the foundations of it is wide like Mm. to like if you are involved to some extent in an organization in any form or in education any part of the state anything that serves as a pillar or as an arm of this state you are a contributor or a participant mm-hmm. of policing and prisons and surveillance and military. Yeah. So, um, so I just wanted to name at the outset too. It's not if, but how. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, and like you know, if we look at the history of the mental health industry in itself, it really did begin with these mental institutions, right? Um, like we look at the history of hysteria and women right? Mm -hmm. Um, And how white men could just, uh, you know, (laughs) like get into a fight with your wife and then just claim your wife to be hysterical and she would be get sent to a mental institution. So that was like during the Victorian era, right? Mm -hmm. But then also, how has mental health been used to police black and indigenous and people of color as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of history in that. And that's not, we don't talk about like how this industry has be, has shaped, has been shaped to become, right? Um, same with social workers, social work in, so when we, when we talk about, when I talk about the mental health industry, it's, I'm talking about therapists, counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, like the, the majority of the helping profession, right? Uh, but social work in Canada boomed with the so-called second wave feminism of Mm -hmm. white women of middle-class white women entering the workforce uh and in in so-called canada it really boomed with these white women becoming social workers and um transition canada transitioned from residential schools to take away indigenous children from their families right as a part of the settler colonial project that the residential schools were that shifted into what is currently the foster care, so-called foster care system, right? Right, which takes, which rips away indigenous, rips apart indigenous families mm-hmm. uh, with much, much bigger numbers yeah. than residential schools did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that was like the big boom of social work mm-hmm. is taking mm-hmm. is white women taking indigenous children away from their families, and it is a continued issue. Right. And so like that is the history of the mental health industry that is implicated in all of this violence. And we don't talk about that. Mm-mm. My eye is twitching. <laughs> 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 like I have so many words that are not in English and are not appropriate. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, I shouldn't be laughing, but I just, you know, sometimes humor and grief and rage. All yes, that is how we process. <laughs> oh God, it's it makes me wonder about what is not carceral mm. in in terms of like impulse. We're gonna take a few steps back a bit and talk a little bit about policing um, and how that exists in 
the mental health industry, whether that may be, and we've seen how much it shows systemically mm-hmm. um, and how, and I wonder how it looks like interpersonally as well. And I'm curious if you happen to have any thoughts around that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Ugh, policing. There is one paper that I want to share with folks, with especially for folks who are um, in the industry and have access to academic papers. Oh my goodness. I'm totally going to, I totally don't remember the name, but uh, we'll link it. We'll link it. Uh, But this paper that was written in 1994, I believe by two white men. And there is something valuable there to offer. Um, I found this while doing, writing up a lit review. And it was a paper written in 1994 that talks about the parallels between colonization and what they call as psych colonization. (laughs) yes and so it talks about like how colonization is only possible through objectifying practices right we objectify the land we objectify black and indigenous peoples we yeah we objectify like asian exploited workers and so asian and latinx exploited workers and like that is how colonialism is possible and they parallel that to the practice of psychology or the historical practice of psychology where there is ongoing objectification in our industry, in the practices, in these like so-called treatment practices of how we like diagnose people um, and like label them and categorize them into these things that like a handful of white men decided, cis white men decided to you know, create as mm-hmm. so-called illnesses right. um, and just the ongoing policing and objectifying and dehumanizing and this like less than inferior, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of mentality, mm-hmm. um, which also positions, uh, which has historically positioned therapists and practitioners as like the, the expert who knows what is wrong with you and they're going to fix you, right? Right. Um, and I think while the therapeutic industry and like, that's where I can speak up from. Cause I, I work in, um, so-called private practice, which isn't very <laughs> private or independent. Um, Vicky <laughs> Reynolds calls it alternative practice, oh, wow. um, but alternative to like in the state, but also we're still complicit in certain many ways. Anyways, anyways, ramble. Um, yeah, and so therapists, um, that's the, that's where I can speak from as like a therapist in so-called private practice, uh, but it's very prevalent in our industry too, right, yeah. in our specific industry as therapists. Mm-hmm. I, and like one example is, for example, the limitations of confidentiality right. and the requirement for us to uh, report our clients to so-called authority, mm-hmm. authoritative organizations and figures. Um, and for folks who are not aware, the limitations to confidentiality, I believe they're similar in so-called Canada and so-called US, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's around like if a client is uh, suicidal and like actively suicidal and mm-hmm. um, is going to harm themselves or or they're going to harm someone else uh, if the therapist is 
um, informed of ongoing abuse that is happening to a vulnerable person, such as yeah. a child or a senior. Mm-hmm. And then the third is if uh, the, the therapist's notes get uh, subpoenaed by the court if mm-hmm. the client gets involved in, in a court process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is drilled, I don't know about you, but that was drilled into me mm-hmm. during our mm-hmm. during my training. Mm-hmm. And we talked like a little bit about who these authoritative uh, figures are, such as like the Ministry of Children and Family Services, right? Mm-hmm. Family and Children Services or the police. But we don't talk about the implications of that. Right. Or how that process looks like. Yeah. Afterwards, like with the separation of families. So basically what we're talking about is mandated reporting, right? That we, if we have any sense that this patient, this client has, if we have any reason to believe that they are a threat to themselves and to others, to minors and to elderly, then we have the authority to report them to said um, Mm -hmm. authorities and entities that would then, they would go through this transition process into, you know, some form of investigation Mm -hmm. and then confine the person um, or separate the person from the family or all of that. And it's not uncommon to have false allegations. And I also want to like emphasize here that such entities are important because we want to protect children. We want to protect the vulnerable. And at the same time, I think that having few people have the authority on saying what abuse is without yeah. contextualizing the situation can yes. bring up a lot of like um, hierarchical oppressive power dynamics, which mm-hmm. therapists do have that authority yeah. as mandated reporters. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yes, you are absolutely right. Like we are often t- drilled in with the the fear yes. of underreporting. We also don't talk about as much as how the people who are involved in CPS, in um, foster care, like they need to confine people in order to make money. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's always going to be racism and capitalism, y'all. They're like married and out to get families, out to get Black mm-hmm. people, Indigenous folks, um, people of color, women and femmes and trans folks. Mm-hmm. So um, that's just where my mind goes. And I'm curious about, so, okay, this is going to poke a little bit for, for a lot of therapists, but recently I posted about how therapists are, and we've already alluded to this, are, we are complicit mm-hmm. to the state because um, we capitalize on the sense yes. of healing and and to be fixed, right? Like when a person feels sick, they will seek help from the very system mm-hmm. that caused yes. that feeling or not that feeling, but that condition mm-hmm. and that illness, right? And so um, it makes sense why therapists don't talk about it as much because they don't mm-hmm. want to, they want to keep making money. We want to keep making money and they don't want to put their professions so-called professions at stake um so there's a hesitation when -hmm. it comes to abolitionist um, efforts and movements because it does involve dismantling the things that benefit us Mm -hmm. yes and so like instead of the privatization of mental health care Mm -hmm. or or mental health care being um only provided by the state right what are the alternatives yeah 
and that's that's always that's what I'm constantly thinking about. And I'm reading Adrian Marie Brown's Emerging yeah. Strategy right now, mm-hmm. and she talked about how like she was taught to deconstruct things and critique, right? And I think myself and you as well, like you know, having been in academia, but also in the you know so so social justice collective liberation space we're quick to critique and deconstruct, but how, where do we learn to reconstruct, right? Where do we learn to envision and imagine alternative uh, ways of doing things? And that's, that's like the main thing that I'm drawn to abolition about is Mm -hmm. like critiquing and deconstructing is only, the purpose of that is to create (laughs) other ways, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, And so with, so with like, our complicity in the prison industrial complex with our involvement with police um, and these institutions for child and family services, right? Um, Like that is something like I think about, okay, what are the alternatives? If I don't want to, uh, (laughs) and this is like, I'm a gray zone type of therapist. Um, Some therapists will be like black and white and be like, you call or you don't. Right. Um, But I'm like, I don't ever want to call the police or these institutions. I don't ever want to um, because I have experienced firsthand this like not mandated reporting, but police violence in relation to um, like the Provincial Mental Health Act Mm -hmm. mandated hospitalization. Right. Uh, I've experienced that most of my clients are, are people of color and and people of color and trans trans and non-binary folks right Mm -hmm. many of them are also um trans and so i don't ever want to call on these institutions which i know um commit violence Mm -hmm. and we know this for fact because there is so many there are so many police killings that are stemmed from quote-unquote mental health checks or well-being checks Mm -hmm. right and we've had several of those um here in so-called Canada in the past year uh predominantly with indigenous folks but like with all with folks of color in general um and so it's like what are the alternatives to policing and to these institutions and it's Mm -hmm. community care in my Mm -hmm. mind right Mm -hmm. um same with therapy like the industry of mental health is growing because capitalism and white supremacy and colonialism are maintained right um if it like therapists have only been around for what like 100 150 years but healers healers have been around for centuries for eons since time Mm -hmm. immemorial and this is what dr travis heath talks about in one of his episodes one of his podcast episodes um we love you we love you so much (laughs) um although you don't know me it's okay you'll get to know me (laughs) yes yes um yeah like what are the alternatives and that is constantly what I'm thinking about because I want to event I mean I don't know if this is going to happen in my lifetime but I would love to live in a world where Mm -hmm mental health care isn't as needed yes because we have been dismantling all these systems interlocking systems of oppression that cause yes so many of these 
so-called illnesses. And it's like, it is not an individual's, it's not mm-hmm. like, what's like, there is, there is meant, I do believe that there is mental illness, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is, I'm not really about absolutes here. And so um, for folks who do really experience mental illness, and I have been there, right? It's like, yes, that is real. And what else or what, how much of that might be due to state sanctioned violence, whether that's poverty or white supremacy or colonialism or imperialism, all of that, mm-hmm. right? Like if we mm-hmm. dismantled these systems, we wouldn't need as much mental health care. Mm-hmm. And that means therapists would be out of jobs. And that's frankly what I want. Right. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, that is honestly what I, what I would love. I've stepped into this <laughs> work because there is a need for therapists of color who are willing to do things differently. Yeah. Uh, because I needed me when I was young. Yeah. But ideally, I, I don't want a, f- a huge mental health industry right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want a need for one right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah you are bringing in the fire G I think that there's a lot to say around that that ranges from how do we enflesh community care in the mm-hmm. here and now and I totally agree with you. Not very many therapists do that. I I wish for a time where we don't need therapists and Mm -hmm. social workers anymore because it must mean that people don't need help because they found each other. Mm -hmm. You know, we have come to realize what is, what I feel like is, um, is natural to humanity. And that is our, our sense of belonging, our capacity to know that we are what we've been needing. Mm-hmm. We are what we've been hoping for to, to live, to thrive, to be safe, Yes, you know, mm-hmm. and that might, that honestly does sound radical for a good majority of folks. Mm-hmm. And yet it's what we've been like, Capitalism has been lulling us to sleep to believe that it is the way, yes, you know, to survive. But really, we ought to count on each other. And we have to abolish the idea that we need to count on the state to be able to get to those places where we are safe or yeah. where we heal. And, and not just abolish that idea because they don't provide it, but because they provide the opposite of it. Mm-hmm. That the state, um, that police cause harm and yeah. danger and violence and um, creates more crime mm-hmm. and creates um, more of the opposite of what they or what yeah. they claim to give. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why like I learned so much from indigenous folks mm-hmm. and indigenous resurgence movements because they look for ways that are out outside of the state, right? They like we need to question the legitimacy of the state. Um, especially in settler colonial states, right, or such as America and Canada. And so to think about like, okay, what does healing look like outside of the state? And what does community, right, what is community care, right? And how can we really cultivate that versus 100% depending on um, state-funded care? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think while it, of course, and I, again, don't want to like 
put this into a black and white, all or nothing binary of yes, it is important that uh, you know therapy gets covered by like health insurance plans and or just not even health insurance. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> not even health insurance. Just uh, just health. Just in general. Um, mm. But then again, we can get into like the politics of citizenship and all of that too. Um, oh anyways. <laughs> too much. We, we can go to many different directions. Y'all, if you like, I, she and I have thought about like recording every time, recording ourselves every time we have a conversation <laughs> because one, it always goes over time and two, it's so good. Yes. <laughs> oh, uh, okay, go on, go on. Yeah, I was just I was just like so enjoying us in this moment. I totally lost my train of thought again. Ah! <laughs> uh, we were talking about insurances. Oh yeah, no, like <laughs> oh, God. the immediate shift of mood. <laughs> being joyous about being together yeah, like, and then oh. insurance. <laughs> Yo, it's the thorn in my flesh. I keep I can't say that enough. No, yeah, um, insurance is the reason why I'm like. is the primary reason why I'm registered um but anyways we do need to work on getting access increased access to mental health care and that does involve navigating the state right Mm -hmm. that is important and what are some of the alternatives as well that we could build and cultivate so that we are not only solely dependent on the state for mental health care. Mm-hmm. And so my clients actually are like a lot of my uh I don't know if inspiration is the right word but like I am in awe of people of color. I am in such awe of people of color because they we and they and um we slash they because we all navigate different mm-hmm. forms of white supremacy, mm-hmm. Na- like leverage community care to degrees that I'm like, I wish white people had this too. <laughs> they have to come up with their own shit though. Yeah. But yeah, like get creative, right? Like, like what does building community care look like so that we don't need to depend on right. police so that they, so that my clients don't need to depend on me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I am a part of their community, but the fact that I am, I am having to make money or I am choosing to make money yeah. off of this uh, means that I am not of, like, I am not accessible. As long as I'm charging for what I do, I'm not accessible. Right. And so, yeah, like, they are a huge inspiration of the ways that I see my clients. Uh, my clients of color navigate community care and like look for other grassroots organizations that are Mm -hmm. doing the work that are like run by and built for Mm -hmm. folks of color of varying intersections um and it's so much rooted in community and healing and abolition right um, of this not being dependent on the state. And so that's that's why I dream about. Mm-hmm. And so like 
I have in my, for example, like my quote unquote informed consent form, which is another tool of policing by our industry. Um, and it can be a helpful document too at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> um, but on my form, which isn't really a form because I don't really get my clients to sign it. I just, it's like a thing, document, my document. Um, I write about my stance on police, right? I write about, like, I am mm-hmm. not about this. And this is technically the rules for me, but I'm willing to get in the gray. I want to, and I am committed to being in the gray zone. Um, and I don't ever want to call police. And so if you are, for example, like suicidal, we need to have a conversation early on about what mm-hmm. what are the alternatives to policing what does community care look like and let's talk about that and like fuck these signed contracts about not you know not going through with attempts like i that doesn't vibe with me that's another power move i yeah. think on the part of therapists um I mean, if a client's like, yes, that's very helpful for me, then of course, then I'll, I'm down to do it. But um, yeah, like I'm always thinking about what are the alternatives? Right. And, and how do I support my clients so that they are not dependent on me and so that I can actually get them to a place where um, our sessions are more like check-ins, mm-hmm. right? Or they're more like check-ins versus the thing that they need to recover from right right um violence yeah Yeah. and a big part of that also which i think doesn't were um big part of that also is that as a therapist i'm not only doing this in therapy Mm -hmm. like therapists need to take on many other roles as you do which i am (laughs) always which is why i'm always in awe of you um, around like okay how are we going to prevent and dismantle these systems of violence that are causing our clients violence mm-hmm. right that are causing our clients pain hi folks i hope that y'all are learning a lot from this conversation that i have with jiyun and that you are continuously leaning in even in the most difficult themes and questions that you linger a little bit longer in the discomfort, especially if you identify as somebody who works in the so-called helping professions. I know that, I know for myself, like these, it's easier to be in the, the realm of denial or in the state of denial and to think more about how I've been benefiting and helping and accompanying my clients towards healing, which I believe you, like that has been happening. And what is it like to courageously hold the this complexity, this nuanced place of being an agent of healing and of change, and at the same time being complicit and actively participating uh, in systemic oppression, systemic racism, especially anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism because we exist within an industry, an industry that functions as, like I said earlier, a pillar, an arm, a support of the state that continues to inflict suffering and 
illness and distress in black indigenous and people of color's lives and their families right so this is also an invitation to be courageous alongside being creative and imaginative around coming up with alternatives to creating community care in this episode i also asked a few of my friends who are in the helping professions in social work and in mental health and share their experiences on what it's like to aim to do anti-racist and decolonized approaches to healing. So here are my friends, Ellen Klein and Brian Brown. My white patients are gonna come in for therapy because in some way their life isn't working for them. And typically that has to do with them not matching up to what they see as the standard for what it means to be healthy, what it means to be emotionally quote unquote regulated, what it means to be mentally well, what it means to be physically well, what it means to be like spiritually well. They have this idea that they're not matching up to. And if I, as a clinician, work to help them shore themselves up to somehow better match a, an ideal that I believe is at its core violently white supremacist, I am a tool in the systems that I want to disrupt. So I think my job is actually to help my patients not get rid of their uncomfortable emotions, but actually to sit with them long enough to see that they are complicit in upholding the systems that oppress not only people of color, but have now fucked with their own lives. They're in the therapy room because of systems like racialized capitalism that have essentially screwed them over as well. And I think it's a very, it's, it's like a critical place to um, develop a huge bladder for shame because in order to see that, my white clients also need to be able to feel not just their shame, but the ancestral shame that we carry for having not just set up these systems, but perpetuated them. So it's like this crux where you have to be able to see your complicity in the various systems that have oppressed others and now are fucking with your own life. And when we can get there together, I think we're starting to do maybe a little bit more ethical psychotherapy. In my work with um, black and brown pupils in general, like uh, I think the best way in which I do anti-racist work or decolonizing of mental health is the immense amount of honor that I bring to black and brown bodies. I do my best to approach every situation with a level of respect for the fight, um, for the strength, for the beauty, for the creativity, for the endurance. Uh, I don't know, for all that makes them who they are in whatever particular moment we find ourselves in. Um, in therapy and so uh, I think the, honestly the best answer that I feel like I have as a mental health practitioner is that I honor um, my BIPOC bodies in a way uh, that at least uh, I hope is noticeable um, and different from how they may engage the world or how their bodies may be perceived in the world. I seek to offer hospitality um, in all aspects of their story, you know. 
when you show someone hospitality, they know that maybe you're picking up on their bullshit, but you let them go. And there's that glance and there's that knowing. There's that hospitality where it's like, okay, you're letting me be theatrical. You're allowing me to perform because that's what freedom really is. You get to fucking act and play. And so extending a level of hospitality and honor, uh, at least for me, uh, I'm always looking for how I can help my clients play, not only in therapy, but in life. And I think that requires me to approach them with a lot of honor um, and a lot of hospitality. Yeah. I think it's really helpful to like share how we are practically participating mm, yes. in abolition. So one of the things that are important to me is that I have as, mm, this is going to be really transparent. I don't meet with a lot of patients. Mm -hmm. I only have a very small clientele <laughs> because, um, and then the rest of my time and energy are dedicated to grassroots movements and mutual aid efforts. Mm -hmm. where a lot of the funding that I get, it's not going to be dispersed to the state. I mean, it's going to be costly, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. people, for folks, this is going to be like their primary source of income. Yeah. And what does it look like to also get creative about, um, about participating in mutual aid efforts mm -hmm. and have it in, and that would involve like really knowing who your neighbors are yeah. and deepening your relationships with them, knowing what that's going to be like in the context of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I highly recommend um, reaching out to the already existing grassroots organizations and also folks who, um, as I mentioned earlier, like maybe finding a political home who are in alignment with your values, mm -hmm. which is not easy. And we also have technology yeah. and also be mindful of the privacy policies of said yeah. technology <laughs> because surveillance is still under, see, it's like everywhere, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Earlier while you were talking, I heard a little bit of like a, from some static and I was like, oh my, sh oh my God, are we being, <laughs> oh my gosh. But yeah, like my, the, the invitation is, what is it like to do grassroots work? What is it like mm -hmm. to normalize within your life, um, to normalize what it's like to have um, horizontal structures mm -hmm. of yes. community care, which, which is honestly indigenous. Yes. And yeah. ancestral. And I, yeah. 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 And I was also going to say that, like, another kind of question that I continuously sit with um, and this is this was offered by um, someone, an Indigenous matriarch who I learn so much from. Uh, her name is Michelle Tatalia Nahaney, and she's a Squamish matriarch from here um, 
on the West Coast. And she offered the phrasing of redressing complicity, redressing Mm. your complicity. And so it's like, yes, we are all complicit, even just being here on these lands you know, we are already complicit and we are complicit in many of these systems of violence. And so how can we redress our complicity so that we can be less complicit and really work in the pursuit of collective liberation, Mm -hmm. right? And so, and and that can look like multiple different avenues. And Mm -hmm. I think grassroots organizations and mutual aid, that is definitely one. I think uh, another like kind of practical thing that I do is I allocate uh, a certain percentage of my income every month to Black and Indigenous individuals, mm-hmm. um, Black and Indigenous individuals um, who are needing some funding, right? And I, mm-hmm. and I follow folks from these different communities who are sharing and amplifying this information of who, like, which individuals are needing um these redistributions and and so that's just a part of my practice and like literally in my I just treat it as a form of an expense like it is a non-negotiable for me as as a therapist who is profiting off of um the quote-unquote healing industry that has Mm -hmm. profited off (laughs) of extractive extractivating uh indigenous knowledges right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. cough cough maslow's hierarchy um <laughs> and dbt and uh, somatics and a lot of the wellness industry <sighs> yeah yeah and so it's a non-negotiable for me right yeah. um so like that's one way that i redress my complicity and the other other ways of redressing complicity is around like staying the fuck away from police I stay very far away from them and I don't ever want to get involved. And so then we have to envision, okay, what are the alternatives? Um, and then also like supporting, but it's not only for folks who live with suicidality too. It's just for everyone. It's like, how are we cultivating community care so that you're not so dependent on me as one individual who is not accessible because you're paying me um, and who is also in uh, ways that you're not dependent on the state as well. Mm-hmm. or these institutions mm-hmm. and so constantly centering community care mm-hmm. and what does that look like for mm-hmm. folks mm-hmm. I feel like there especially when I think about like how white cis folks are receiving this there might be some level of fear or nervousness around having to um address and also um dismantle a mentality or an idea that's been normalized over time. Mm-hmm. That we need mental health industry, we need hospitals in order to be healthy and safe, or etc. Yeah. And I feel like that is anchored in a sense of scarcity, mm-hmm. right? Where um, it's not uncommon for, especially white folks, to operate from that mentality. You know, mm-hmm. if if not this industry, then who? Yeah, and I think it's also important for white. I mean, I think the idea of like abolition can be scary because it's like this is who I've always depended on, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so to change, change is oftentimes uncomfortable and scary. And at the same time, I really think about 
these as opportunities. Like, that's why talking about abolition uh, feels so exciting and, like, liberatory for me Mm -hmm. because I'm like, wow, like, what are all the opportunities and ways of doing things that we haven't tapped into and not even haven't thought about because, I mean, many of these alternatives are not new, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They're not new. They have been around for a long, long time. They they just haven't been um, the quote-unquote dominant ways of doing things or the dominant society, dominant as the oppressor. Uh, But there are so many, yeah, it's like, what are the opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. And we get to envision and imagine and create. And that really excites me. It's also important for us, and I think for myself too, as a um uh as a person of korean ancestry in a settler colonial state is not to fetishize mm-hmm. or um take from indigenous black and indigenous peoples and cultures and mm-hmm. knowledge systems and wisdoms not to take that and replicate it right um cuz i think that's also kind of common Mm-hmm. But it's like, okay, what did my ancestors do? How did my ancestors navigate harm and violence? Um, and I think there are some, you know, I know that like Korea, for example, has been implicated in police police violence, right? And like slavery within within our peoples um, for a long time. And so sometimes there's like grief to process there too of like, oh, maybe my ancestors didn't do things in a lovely, wonderful way. Um, And at the same time, it's like, okay, but what other ways did, you know, what are some of the beauties in there that I could leverage and like grow and cultivate Mm -hmm. from that? And I think that's important for all of us. Thank you for being with me as we continue to grow. and um, deepen our understanding and practice of abolitionist efforts and um, creating abolitionist dreams. My last question for you is, what does safety belonging mean or feel like for you? Hmm. Whew. What a question. I think, um, yeah, so I think like as a person, as a child of diaspora, I guess I still consider, yes, I am a child. (laughs) I'm an adult child. Um, As a person of diaspora, I I don't really know like what it might have looked like if I was living in my ancestors, in my motherland. Um, but I think being here as an immigrant, I've connected with a lot of folks who have also navigated this in-between space of belonging, right? And I think in that of of building community among folks who have questioned their sense of belonging, um, I have found a sense of community and belonging there among mm. us yeah. yeah and and so I think like community is something that I've been thinking a lot about for myself mm-hmm. of how to build um 
how to find a sense of home because I don't associate so-called Vancouver as home. I don't really believe in um, associating a settler colonial state where I am the oppressor as a, as a settler home. Um, like this land does not belong to me. And so if it's not a physical space where I feel a sense of belonging or a sense of safety, where do I feel those things? And it's for me, it's in the collective and in the community. And so I, I really try to embody what I, tr what I preach, right? Um, and try to invite my clients into. And I feel really good, actually, about the community that I've been building. Um, mm. Just the, the friends. And I've been really questioning even that term because I feel like yeah. several of these people in my life really do feel like soulmates and partners. They feel like partnerships, um, platonic partnerships, but partnerships. Like lightly, like yeah, like you feel you genuinely feel like a life partner, and I have mm -hmm. a few other folks who genuinely feel like life partners, where we're gonna do life together, and it feels like a sense of family, but in a very different way, yeah. <laughs> where healing is centered and consent is centered and care is centered. Um, and so yeah, I feel really solid in that, and like I know that if anything happens to me my community's got my back mm -hmm. um whether it be resources or funds or care or empathy or even solidarity um yeah like it's i've been really intentionally building my community over the years didn't was not always this way i had to really detox and yeah. like flush out a lot of folks yeah. who didn't share the vision of the world that I wanted to create um a handful of years ago but intentionally intentional community building I think is where I I find and seek and cultivate a sense of safety and belonging mm -hmm. yeah and it just yeah. feels like fuzzy and warm when I think about it <laughs> to the point where like I actually don't even think a lot about safety um like within my own community mm. right like I don't question that mm -hmm. yeah um, out in the world of course I do but I think that's also one of the privileges of being in private practice is that I don't have to talk to people that I don't want to talk to um and so the people that I choose to engage with I don't even question my sense of safety because even if there is conflict or rupture in some way I know that we have, I have the tools and my community members have the tools and the desire and the, and the glad heart to make repairs, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gee, thank you. Thank you for sharing with us the, the richness of your, your knowledge. And I'm honored and deeply delighted to be um, in community with you. And yes. I really, I really truly hope that for, um, like really my intention when it comes to like podcast spaces is to have, it's my intention to like have friends <laughs> join mm -hmm. me in these conversations and not just to distribute um, awareness and knowledge around oppression and the potential for how um, an abolitionist future, our abolitionist futures look like, but to see how that can exist right now too. Mm -hmm. yes. with, yeah, with just this 
this type of intimacy in friendship that there is no such thing as a hierarchy of intimacy where we're romantic, you know, or um, where marriage is like at the top. Like, what is it like that it that it's more cyclical? And I think that that is such a um, maybe that's also why there's more fear when it comes to community care, because it does require or precede vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, in the context of consent, you know, yeah. um, it, it does, it's more active in a relational sense than it is passive. It, it is more interpersonally involved. So, mm-hmm. and that, yes, it's going to be fucking messy. It's yes. going to, there's going to be a lot of rupture and we have what it takes to repair. Mm-hmm. And we have what it takes to have these honest conversations. And we have what it takes to also trust in ourselves and each other and Mama Earth and our ancestors, we are not alone. And thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know. 